This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. So this is the, the first uh, slide I use when I'm presenting my work to experts in my field. Uh, but the heart of the matter is I study partial differential equations. So now might be a good time to issue a small disclaimer. Um, Mathematicians are like lawyers. <laughs> We're very particular about the words we choose and the order in which we say those words. Um, for example, I, I think I may have um, some of my students maybe in the audience, and they could tell you that the phrase, for all epsilon there exists delta, means something completely different from the phrase, for all delta, or let's see, there exists delta such that for all epsilon. So the, the order of these words really does matter. Um, but for the point of today's talk, I, I'm going to try and put my legalistic nature aside uh, and just communicate the main idea of these types of equations that I study. So first of all, what is a partial differential equation? Well, it's something that describes a quantity that's changing in more than one dimension. So in the case of, of this equation, it's a quantity that's changing in both space and time. And the partial differential equations that I study are used to describe models of collective dynamics, like a flock of birds, school of fish, a galaxy of stars, uh, or a colony of bacteria. In each of those examples, there's a large number of individual agents that are interacting according to a few simple rules. And from those interactions, large-scale complex phenomena emerge. So one of my favorite examples of collective dynamics is uh, a flock of starlings, or technically a murmuration of starlings. Um, so here is such a flock uh, in the United Kingdom. It's at dusk, and they're hunting for food, bugs. Um, and I think this is a great example of collective dynamics um, because it illustrates a lot of the important properties. So um, the first is that there's no head bird that's you know, directing the motion of the entire flock. Each bird is just interacting with the birds around it, you know, at, at a scale of just a few feet. And somehow, these large-scale, complex patterns emerge. Another important feature of this system um, is that, at least hopefully, it seems like none of the birds collide. Um, so you could think of that as a type of short-range repulsion from bird to bird to avoid collision. But at the same time, the edge of the flock has a sharp line. So there's some sort of cohesion to the flock as a whole. And you can think of that as a large-scale attraction that's somehow balancing with this short-range repulsion. Um, the other nice thing about this example is it shows the emergence of different time scales. So at first, maybe the whole flock will be moving one direction at a steady speed with a steady spacing. And then all of a sudden, the, the spacing will become much more concentrated and the direction will change as the shock goes through the flock. Um, so here are two other examples of collective dynamics. Uh, the first is a swarm of robots. So these robots are actually on the basketball court at UCLA. And what they're doing is they're trying to distribute themselves evenly on this kind of black circle. And so again, as with the birds, there's no head robot, and there's no controller controlling the motion of all the robots. Instead, they're interacting with each other and their environment to perform a task. Um, so the next example is uh, here we have um, a very thin sheet of neovium, uh, which is a superconducting metal. And when you run a magnetic field through it, these little dots appear, which are called vortices. And so on one hand, the magnetic field makes the dots want to move to the bottom uh, of, the, of the sheet. Um, but at the same time, each vortex repels all of the other vortices. So again, we have this delicate balance between two um, competing uh, behaviors. 
Uh, and the last example of collective dynamics is, is probably the one that's closest to my heart, um, and that is a colony of slime mold. So uh, it turns out that if you put a colony of slime mold in a petri dish and you take out all the food, so they're under starvation conditions, um, they do some very interesting behavior. On one hand, they diffuse throughout the petri dish, searching for food. Um, but at the same time, each cell is emitting a chemical called a chemoattractant. And the cells want to swim towards higher concentrations of that chemical. It, they, it kind of makes them attract each other. They're attracted to that chemical. And so this makes them want to aggregate or build up concentrations, as you can see they're doing right now. So we have these two competing effects, diffusion, searching for food on one hand, and then attraction, aggregation on the other. And if you start off with enough slime mold in the petri dish, the aggregation will win, and you know, they form a spore that hopefully floats off somewhere else where there's more food. <clears throat> so why do collective dynamics matter? Um, so let's first talk about uh, the flock of birds. So the mathematical models you could use to describe the motion of a flock of birds are pretty similar to the mathematical models you could use to describe a school of fish. Okay, well, well, why do fish matter? Well, it turns out that over the past hundred years, fishermen have noticed big changes in the migration patterns of several species of fish. And so by developing mathematical models which describe how those migration patterns depend on things like ocean current or temperature, we can understand how climate change is affecting our oceans. Okay, what about the robots? So it turns out this is just a, a small piece of a much bigger project, um, which is to create uh, systems of, of interacting drones. It grew out of the RoboBee project. So here I have a little robotic bee. Um, and the idea is to create these fleets of drones that have no central controller to perform tasks like, okay, crop pollination, you know, inspired by the RoboBee, but other tasks like maybe landmine detection. What about the uh, vortices uh, in the superconductor? So the motion of uh, vortices in superconductors turns out to relate to a key property of superconductors, which is that they have zero electrical resistance. So what does that mean? So there's a lot of sun in the Nevada desert. We would love to just put a bunch of solar panels in the Nevada desert to make a lot of solar power. But how do we get that from the Nevada desert to Los Angeles. It turns out that the current materials we use for electrical power transmission cause a lot of the power to be lost when you're transmitting it over long, large distances. The fact that these special materials, superconductors, have zero electrical resistance could be used to develop better materials for electrical power transmission. So we wouldn't lose as much when moving it from Nevada to Los Angeles. And then the last example, my favorite example, the slime mold. Um, of course, slime mold is inherently interesting in its own sake, but um, it turns out that this uh, is also a really good model organism for studying chemotaxis, which is the communication of cells through chemical signals. And that the same types of communication is used um, in the formation of embryos. But slime mold is a lot easier to study in the lab. <clears throat> okay, so I hope I've convinced you why collective dynamics are interesting, but why do we need math to study them? Why don't we use biology or physics or engineering? So why do mathematical models matter? So let's say we start with some real-world system, like a colony of cells, the slime mold. From that, we'll make a bunch of simplifying assumptions. Like, for example, we might assume that the petri dish is infinitely large, and, and that would help us because then we wouldn't have to worry what happens when a cell hits the boundary of the petri dish. 
And if we make a bunch of these simplifying assumptions, we can move from the real world to the fake world, which is where I live, <laughs> the world of mathematical models. Um, so here I have the uh, original paper by uh, Evelyn Keller and Lee Siegel, where they developed a famous equation that's called the Keller-Siegel equation. It's a partial differential equation. I put it at the bottom. And uh, it's an example of an initial value problem. So basically, you give me an initial configuration of the cells, and what the equation says is it predicts where the cells will move next, what the movie will look like starting from that initial configuration. Okay, so we're in the fake world. You know, why does anybody care about these mathematical models or, or what these equations predict? Um, well, the first reason is that these equations uh, allow you to make theoretical predictions about the real-world system. So, Let's just say that maybe you wanted to add a chemical to the Petri dish that would somehow inhibit the effectiveness of the chemoattractant that each cell was spitting out. And you were wondering how that would affect the movement of the slime mold. Well, what you could do is at first you could look at the mathematical model and make a, a prediction about uh, what this chemical would do. And the mathematical model could also guide you as to what experiments you should do in order to either validate or disprove this prediction. So the other reason a mathematical, we need mathematical models is for uh, computer simulations. Um, so by developing mathematical models, we can do numerical experiments or experiments on the computer. And it's much easier to do experiments on the computer than in real life. So you can run a, bun run a bunch of experiments on the computer in order to figure out what are the interesting, what are the most important experiments that you should do in real life so that you can you know, use your resources in the most efficient way. <clears throat> So there's one more reason that I think mathematical models matter, and this is the reason that I think math is so fascinating. So it turns out that you can have a mathematical model that was originally derived for one real-world system, and it'll have a surprising connection to a different mathematical model that was designed for a completely different real-world system. So at the top, I have the Keller-Siegel equation. So this equation was designed for the, the slime mold, chemotaxis system. Um, and at the bottom, I have the Navier-Stokes equation. And this is a famous equation that's used to describe the motion of fluids, like water or air. <clears throat> and it's an important equation in the fields of meteorology and aerospace engineering. So as you can see, the equations look pretty similar. Maybe you move a minus sign here and there, move a dot around, um, add an upside down T. But aside, <laughs> but aside from that, um, the equations look pretty similar. And uh, it, it turns out that they don't just look similar, they actually have some similar mathematical properties. And a lot of the recent progress on the Keller-Siegel equation has come from mathematical developments that were originally designed for the Navier-Stokes equation. So the reason why the connection between these two equations is particularly exciting um, is because the Navier-Stokes is actually related to one of the Clay Math Institute's seven millennium problems. Um, so in 2000, they picked seven unsolved math problems that if you could solve any of them, you would win a million dollar prize. And it turns out that for the Navier-Stokes equation, we don't know that if you start off with some nice initial configuration of say the water, that you know, the Navier-Stokes equation tells you how that should evolve in time, and we don't know if the what that tells us is actually always physically reasonable or not. It could give us something totally crazy and unphysical. We don't know. It hasn't been either proved or disproved. Um, so if you can figure this out, you get a million dollars. It's called well-posedness of the Navier-Stokes equations. And um, there are also several unsolved problems for the Keller-Siegel equations, uh, which is the equation I work on, um, though 
I often wonder if I'm working on the right equation since I'm not going to win a million dollars if I solve any of them. Um, so let me tell you what some of the unsolved problems are for the Keller-Siegel equations. Um, so one unsolved problem is the problem of stability. So what do I mean by that? Okay. What is the Keller-Siegel equation? You give me some initial configuration of the slime mold, and the Keller-Siegel equation tells us what the movie is going to look like, how it's going to evolve in time. So what does an initial configuration even mean? I guess, like, are, are you going to your biology lab, and you're putting the, the Petri dish under your microscope, and you're trying to find the initial locations of, of each of the cells, but you're only going to be able to measure that to some degree of accuracy. And, you know, let's say you think a cell started off right there, but it actually started off a tiny, tiny bit to the left. In order for the Keller-Siegel to be a robust mathematical model, we, we, we expect that the resulting movie it gives you shouldn't be drastically different, whether or not one tiny cell starts here or right here. So this is the concept of stability, that if you make a tiny change, the resulting system is basically the same. So the picture I have here for stability is actually an example of something that is unstable. <laughs> I guarantee you that if I tried to make a tiny change to that system, it would not be basically the same. Okay, so stability is important because if you don't have stability of your mathematical model, how can you have confidence that the predictions it give you have any relevance to in the real world? Now, what about long-time behavior? So this is the problem of what happens uh, to your solutions if you wait around long enough. So if you let the movie just keep running and keep running and keep running. So I've already told you one of the things that can happen. All of the cells can concentrate to a single point and form a spore. But there's actually lots of other things that could potentially happen. Um, and long-time behavior is important from the perspective of applications because, you know, frankly, we make so many simplifying assumptions to go from the real-world system to this mathematical model that it would be a little unrealistic to expect that the mathematical model would perfectly match the real-world system at every second in time. But something that you could expect and would hope for is that if you wait long enough, they'll both end up in the same place. So understanding the long-time behavior for the Keller-Siegel equation is important from that perspective. So when you have some big unsolved problem like this in science, what everyone does is they break off their little piece. And in fact, important cases of both the stability and the long-time behavior problems have already been solved. Um, and new results are coming out all the time. So here are just a bunch of papers that have been published since January 1st of this year on the Keller-Siegel equation. So there are research groups all over the world that are breaking off a piece of this problem and working on it. So let me tell you a little bit about the piece that I broke off. So this is joint work with two collaborators. One was Inwan Kim, she's a professor at UCLA, uh, and another was Yao Yao, she's a professor at Georgia Tech. And what we were interested in doing is looking at what happens in the Keller-Siegel equation if you really slow down this diffusion behavior. So the Keller-Siegel has this competition between, on one hand, the cells diffuse around looking for food, and on the other hand, they want to aggregate and form concentrations. And this parameter m in the equation, you might see it, it's in red, controls how slow the diffusion is. In particular, as m gets bigger and bigger and bigger, the diffusion gets slower and slower and slower. Okay, so let me show you some numerical uh, simulations to get a flavor for what that means. Um, so 
in these numerical simulations, what you're thinking of, these piles are piles of cells. And we're assuming that the cells are so small that you can't distinguish the individual cells. You just kind of see the whole pile of them. Okay, so uh, we're going to look at the, the, the first simulation. We have really pretty fast diffusion. The, the solutions diffuse very quickly searching for food. In the next simulation, I slow the diffusion down a little bit. And you can especially see the difference if you look at the base uh, of the solutions. Now, in the last solution, what I do is I take this parameter m and I send it to infinity. And now, what turns out is the diffusion goes away. And instead of diffusion, it's as if we put a lid on the Petri dish. So whereas before we had the aggregation was competing with this uh, tendency towards diffusion. Now what we have is aggregation competing with the fact that there's a lid on the petri dish. The cells are only going to be able to concentrate and build up so much. <clears throat> okay, so what can we say about these problems of stability and long time behavior in this case? So it turns out that the, the, the trick that we needed to gain insight into this problem is a you know, long-standing scientific tradition, which is what happens to the system if we poke it? Um, and why that's relevant here is, so let's, let's think about stability. Um, so stability is you give me some sort of initial condition, the equation predicts how that's going to evolve, and what we're worried about is if I just moved one tiny cell a little bit, we had a completely different evolution. So to understand stability, what we need to understand is how different choices of that initial configuration affect our solution. So let's suppose that we have two choices of initial configuration, option A and option B. Now, mathematicians are very thorough. We don't just want to check option A and option B. We want to check all of the options between option A and option B. But there's a lot of different ways you could think about going between these two options. I'd say the most common way and the way that works best in most contexts is called a linear interpolation. And that's basically you just fade option A out and fade option B in. And it has this nice kind of closed formula. But it turns out that this is completely the wrong perspective for our problem. What we needed to do instead was the displacement interpolation. Now, looking at the, the movie, I think the displacement interpolation certainly looks more physically natural. You know, the cells aren't just like disappearing and reappearing somewhere else. But the, it turns out that there's not really as nice of a formula to write down this displacement interpolation. So it's maybe a little more technically challenging. Okay, so why am I talking about these interpolations? These interpolations give us a way to sort of poke or perturb our solution and see what happens to the equation. And by poking or perturbing it using this displacement interpolation, we discover something important. Our problem has an energy structure. Okay, so what do I mean by that? It turns out that the evolution of the slime mold is just like a ball rolling down a hill. So in particular, it's a gradient flow. So when a ball rolls down a hill, okay, well, first of all, it rolls down the hill. It moves to lower elevations. But at the same time, the steepness of the hill controls how quickly the ball rolls. It rolls faster at steeper places and then kind of slows down um, when the hill becomes more flat. So it turns out that there's this notion of hill for our slime mold system. <clears throat> so to explain what I mean by that, I'm going to start off with, with a simpler example. So this is not, doesn't relate to the specific problem we were studying, but I think we'll build up to that. Okay, so let's suppose for a second 
that we have some initial configuration of slime mold. You see that in blue and green. And then we also have a hill. So you see that in pink and purple. So I told you that the slime mold moves like a ball rolling down a hill. So we kind of expect somehow the slime mold to move to the basin of this, of this hill. And the hill is another word for that is it's the potential of the system. So if you, uh, you know, let the movie go, sure enough, the slime mold moves towards the center of the plot, which corresponds to the basin of the hill. And I, I stopped this simulation after a few seconds, but if we let it keep running, it would just keep concentrating more and more at the center of the plot. Okay, so that was just the first example to get you guys used to this idea of what it means to, for it to roll downhill or evolve according to a potential. So here's another example. What if we flipped the hill upside down? So now the ball still wants to roll down the hill, but that it's gonna make things wanna move away from the center of the plot. And you can also see that the hill gets steeper and steeper the farther you move away. So the cells are gonna wanna move faster and faster. Um, and sure enough, uh, that's what happens in, until they kind of disappeared off the reason I plotted. <laughs> but you get the idea, they're rolling down the hill. Okay, so these were two kind of simple examples to explain what I meant by this energy structure. So now let's go back to the specific equation we were studying. So we're thinking about slime mold in a petri dish, and they have these competing effects between the aggregation, they want to build up concentrations, and the lid on the petri dish. <clears throat> so for a second, let's think about what happens if we didn't have the lid. Just focus on the aggregation piece. Okay, so if we just have aggregation, what happens is you can see they first they sort of concentrate in on themselves and become peaked, and then the two bumps merge. And if I let this keep running, it would just become you know, more and more peaked. <clears throat> so what's interesting is what happens to the potential. It turns out in this case, not only does the slime mold depend on the potential, the potential depends on the slime mold. So it's as if a ball were rolling down a hill, but the hill itself is changing in time in response to where the ball is rolling. Another interesting thing you can see about this is that the potential becomes very, very sharply peaked around where the slime mold is building up its concentration. So in other words, the slime mold is moving faster and faster the more concentrated it gets. Okay, and now let's see what happens when we put the lid on. This is the system we wanted to study. So we have the slime mold wanting to build up concentrations, but there's a lid at height one, so it can't exceed that. And then if we see what happens with our potential, uh, you know, now crazy things are happening and maybe the numerical resolution isn't that good. Um, okay, so how does this relate back to the problems I was talking about? How does it relate back to stability? Well, what we're worried about in stability is that if you just push one little cell a tiny bit to the left, the evolution would be completely different. So we can reframe that into a question about the potential. What we're worried about is if the potential had two really steep bumps that were right next to each other, so that if we moved a cell a tiny bit to the left, it would roll down one bump and get sent off that way. But if we moved it a tiny bit to the right, it would roll down the other bump and get sent off that way. So that, that would give us an instability in our system. So in other words, in order to control the stability of our original system, what we need to do is we need to make sure that our potential doesn't have these kinds of bad bumps that would cause you know, different cells to roll off extremely quickly in um, bad directions. 
So it turns out that the way we were able to get around this and show that our potential does not have these bad bumps actually came from fluids. It, related, it comes from this special connection between the Keller-Siegel equation and the Navier-Stokes equations. So um, back uh, in the 1960s, Yudovich ran into a similar problem when he was studying an equation called the Euler equations, which is the same as the Navier-Stokes but without the red term. <clears throat> and he, he had to also control these bad bumps in the potential. Uh, and what he realized is he developed a method to do it that worked as long as he knew that the height of uh, his solution didn't get too tall. Well, the good news for us is that we have a lid on our Petri dish, so we're guaranteed that the height of the slime mold can't get too tall. So consequently, we were able to exactly adapt Udovich's method in order to prove that our potential can't develop these bad bumps. <clears throat> and once we were able to solve the question of stability, um, we were able to move on to the long time behavior. Um, so here you see a cross-sectional view, and what we were able to show is that uh, whatever initial configuration you give me, it'll eventually all concentrate up with a, it'll be a flat top at the height of the petri dish, and it'll be a circular base. Now, on one hand, maybe that's kind of obvious. So, you know, this, the system is aggregating, it wants to build up concentrations, it hits the top of the petri dish, so it can't build up anymore. So then maybe it makes sense that it starts filling in all the gaps around it to have a circular base. Um, so one hand, you can say, oh, that's obvious. Why did you guys try to prove it? But we did a little bit more. We actually proved how long you have to wait until your solution um, adopts this new configuration. So we quantified the long-time behavior. So you know, this was really just the, the first step um, in the, in the direction of this line of research, there are many uh, things that have yet to be done. I, I think the first thing that I really want to do is, you may have guessed just by looking at the previous slide, is that we really need to work on our numerics for the long-time behavior. Um, it's the cur our current numerical schemes, when we um, look at what happens after a long time, it becomes incredibly computationally expensive, um, and, and we don't get good numerical results. So we need a new idea in order to get good numerical results for the long-time behavior of, of these equations. Um, the second uh, direction for future work is that you know, I, I, I told you that we were motivated to study this problem by slowing down the diffusion in the original Keller-Siegel equation. But what would be really nice is if we could quantify exactly how slow do you need to make the diffusion for it to be pretty close to our problem with the lid on it. If we can figure that out, that will allow us to connect the piece of the problem we solved back to the greater problem for the Keller-Siegel equations. Um, and then the last direction for future uh, research um, I think is really fun. Um, it turns out that uh, the work we've done on modeling slime mold um, in a petri dish with a lid on it connects to um, creating models for pedestrian crowds. So you know you can either think of a crowd like this one, this is a, a UCSB graduation, or a crowd like the crowd of people in this room. So. At the end of my talk, uh, you'll probably all stand up and, and start moving towards the nearest exit, hopefully not running towards the nearest exit. Don't leave now. Um, and uh, so, uh, you know, you'll, and, and if we imagine that there are no chairs in the room, so there are no obstacles, you would probably move, you know, in a straight line towards the nearest exit. But the issue is, is that if we all stood up at the same time and started moving, 
essentially no one would actually get to move in that straight line because you can only pack people together so closely. So most people, we kind of, you'd run into someone else and then you would have to change the direction that you were walking. So it turns out that this fact that you can only pack humans together so closely from a mathematical perspective is exactly the same as putting the lid on the petri dish for our slime mold. So we're interested in how this mathematical model that we studied in the context of slime mold could also be used to study pedestrian crowd dynamics. Okay, thank you very much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.